welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. I'm Stephanie Carvin, high above the Rita River, and I'm joined by my fellow Intrepid podcast editors, Jess Davis and Leah West. And we are here today for the election extravaganza uh, of 2019, coming out, of course, perhaps maybe one and a half days before the actual election. But that's not our fault. Uh, a lot of the party platforms came out late and then um, Craig was away and we can't upload. It's a, it's a whole thing. Um, so, uh, But we, we figured better late than never. And we thought we would go through the different party platforms on a number of security issues and just kind of talk through them. And we're going to kind of treat this like as ideas as opposed to, you know, election platforms, because we figure by the time a lot of uh, our listeners actually hear it, it may actually be a bit late. So but it's always fun to talk about ideas. That's why we have this podcast. So thanks for joining me, guys. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So I think what we'd put down here, there's a lot of uh, foreign policy ideas. I think what we want to do is, is kind of stick to our bread and butter. So we're going to look at things like uh, cyber intelligence and defense, foreign aid, and uh, the Arctic. So we're going to, and, and foreign aid in the sense that I think that's where some of the sanctions come in. And of course, uh, there's some terrorism issues mixed in there as well. And actually, I should say thank you to our research assistant, Hannah Deagle, who has done a great job compiling this for us because we're all kind of running around with our, with our hair on fire this time of year. So thanks to Hannah for actually compiling this. The first heading here is, is immigration. Now, we're not really an immigration podcast, and a lot of this is about um, skills and and uh, thinking about refugees and stuff like that, I thought we would focus on the fact, really, that's kind of what seems to be the focus of, say, the Liberal Party, the Green Party, the NDP. But it, what's interesting here is the Conservatives want to put on 250 new Canadian Border Service agency officers. And that would be, uh, the purpose <laughs> would be to deport in, you know, people in Canada illegally. So I don't know if they're thinking here of an ICE style or Immigration's Custom Enforcement style operation in Canada. But there has been some reporting recently from Global that we have not been doing very well at actually deporting people who are in Canada illegally and have been found to be uh, here. So do you guys have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I th think in general, the conservative platform tends to be kind of moving up the whole process. So putting more people on the border to detain individuals crossing the border, immigration judges at the border who can make kind of snap decisions that would assess the situation apparently on the ground um, and then turn people away, which I think poses a lot of due process issues um, uh, that, you know, just inherently you look at and you're like, well, how how on earth would someone be properly represented and truly understand what the law of Canada allows for um, if they're making these kind of snap decisions on the border? I, I, I could be wrong, but it's hard to tell from the platform exactly what having immigration judges at the border would do other than that. Um, the other issue as well is this, they've talked about kind of creating a whole, making the whole border a point of entry um, that basically says, you know, if you're crossing from a safe third country, um, usually when you cross from a safe third country at a border point, um, you're, you can't claim refugee status. So if you're crossing from the U.S. into Canada at a border, at a border crossing, um, that would limit your capacity to make um, refugee claims if you're coming from a safe third country, the only safe third country recognized being the United States. So by expanding that kind of border zone to the entire border, border, they're basically saying that irregular crossers wouldn't 
get through what the conservatives seem to be considering a loophole in the Safe Country Agreement. Right. So this is the Roxham Road situation. And it's actually really interesting because it's not just the conservatives who want to end this safe third party agreement. It's also the Green Party and the NDP. So this is a strange uh, unifier across uh, the platforms. But I think from my understanding um, that the NDP and the Greens are more thinking about terminating the safe third country agreement because they no longer recognize the United States as a safe third country for many migrants. Right. So while the issue um, is somewhat similar in effect, realistically, they're trying to say that it we need to recognize that certain individuals, especially given the current climate in the United States, may not actually be safe once they enter the United States. They may continue to be persecuted persons, and that's why we should abandon the safe third country agreement with the United States and recognize that even if people are crossing from the United States, they may still face persecution and may not be safe in the U.S. So I don't really have anything on that, but I do see something in the Green Party platform that I'm curious about what you guys think about it. The Green Party wants to create a civilian complaints and review commission through the Canadian Border Services Agency. And to me, this really speaks to the broader oversight and review that is the the trend for that that we've been seeing in in the Liberal government. So I'm curious about what you guys think about that proposal. I I think that this was uh, not dissimilar from the Liberal legislation that actually died uh, when the election was called. So there is some idea that, yeah, we should have some kind of uh, overview agency. Now, there was the bill that died in Parliament was not just the CBSA, it was also for the RCMP as well. So there would be that that kind of oversight. And we've spent a lot of time on the podcast talking about the fact that um, the National Security Intelligence Review Agency does have remit over the CBSA, but only on those kind of national security issues. So things like this with regards to drug policy, human smuggling, anything like that, that it really isn't terrorism, espionage, clandestine foreign influence in, in some way would not really be covered by the NSIRA. So I think that's that's important that we do have this in terms of transparency. Um, so, you know, I it, 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 but to me, it, it's very similar to the law that that actually died um, way back in what now feels like a million years ago in June. Yeah. And additionally, um, with respect to overseeing CBSA, um, the RCMP and well, all other law enforcement agencies generally have some sort of civilian complaint and review body. And it's not just about whether or not the agencies are complying with the law. It's, you know, how are officers interacting with the the people that they're ultimately bound to protect? So if someone um, manhandles you inappropriately or someone is discriminatory in their language to you, that there is a capacity to bring a complaint and to have an, an outside body review that. And given the powers that CBSA have and could put you know, if depending on what elements of certain parts of these platforms are implemented, if they have more powers, I, I think having a capacity where um, there's there's a lot more opportunity to bring heat and light to individual actions of CBSA officers is not a bad thing. Great. Okay. So one, I should also add here the the Liberal Party does say that it's going to modernize the third safe party agreement. So either way, I think whatever party does get elected and form the government on Monday, the fact that the third safe country agreement will likely see some changes in the next uh, four years. So next up on the list, we have the cybers. Um, All of the cybers. All of the cybers. Um, So what we've seen here, uh, the Liberal Party is basically saying it wants to um, create a digital charter. We actually had Nate Erskine Smith on at the beginning of the year, and he did. That was an issue that was near and dear to his heart. But basically increasing the digital rights for Canadians generally. That's not so national security, but obviously when it comes to privacy and, and kind of 
issues around consent. I think there are some nexus there with with national security. And then um, one thing here that that's pretty uh, intense, but I think mirrors an Australian law, which is that social media platforms will be mandated to remove hateful content within 24 hours, uh, or there'll be financial consequences. And this includes terrorism propaganda. That's something that I know the social media companies have not been a massive fan of in Australia. So it's interesting to see that the liberals would go there uh, with their legislation. Uh, Jess, I think you had some points on this. Yeah. So this whole idea, you know, I think that we can all agree that, you know, hateful content on the on the internet is, is a problem. The idea of having financial consequences in terms of removing it really reminds me very much of the financial penalties that are imposed on company or on financial institutions, banks, when they don't comply with the Canadian uh, anti-money laundering counter-terrorist financing laws. Those financial penalties are not particularly good at deterring um, or in- encouraging compliance with that law. These penalties would have to be huge for these social media companies for them to actually be effective at ensuring compliance or incentivizing these companies to do this kind of thing. I don't think that we have the legal framework in Canada or the legal appetite to make those huge uh, fines and then implement them. So we're talking, we would need probably things in the hundreds of millions of dollars in terms of meaningful fines for these co- for these companies. Um, you know, the fines that we have right now in the financial sector are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe a million dollars on the outside. Those are not meaningful penalties for the financial sector. We need to see the same parallel with the social media companies. So to me, you know, the parallels there are very similar. The challenges, though, are also really similar in terms of incentivizing companies to do this kind of thing. But then there's also the meaningful uh, mechanisms they have to do it. I'd also add that there's a problem in terms of just actually being able to enforce judgments against companies that don't have brick and mortar here in Canada. That's totally different than um, financial institutions who are regulated here within Canada. Um, Facebook, for example, doesn't maintain headquarters here in Canada. Craigslist the same. And you know all these kinds of so- major kind of. Craigslist is not a social media company, obviously, but these kinds of companies that are largely online tend to have their brick and mortar in the United States in part so they can't be regulated by all of these different countries in every different jurisdiction. So should Canada enforce or attempt to enforce some sort of judgment, levy a judgment um, or a fine against Facebook, for example, for not removing content? How is a court going to enforce that if the company is not here within Canada? So again, it's one of those nice um, nice to say, but really hard to actually make work and practice. I mean, that's that's really interesting. I mean, I guess when I look at this, the first thing I think of is the Christchurch call that um, ever since the, the mosque shootings in New Zealand, there's been a lot of pressure on social media companies, uh, particularly since the perpetrator of that attack uh, was able to live broadcast effectively. And that I think, you know, there were so many attempts to just continuously upload uh, the the file that this person had made, and and I wonder if if we did this, would this be something that Canada would effectively ha- be for the reasons that both of you raised? Would this be something that we would have to do with our allies? I would think so. I think there's really n- no way of of making this worthwhile, um, especially because Canada is a relatively small market for these companies. I don't see a, a reason why um, Facebook would take the efforts. And the other thing I'll add too is that if we're trying to do things with like 
with our allies, right? We would need the United States on board. And the First Amendment issues and the First Amendment protections in the United States are voicefully protected. So I don't necessarily think that it would be something um, easy to achieve with the United States. Again, the parallels with the financial sector are super strong here. So we've spent the better part of the last 20 years trying to make sure that every country in the world has very similar regulations to basically prevent jurisdiction hopping. So you, instead of going to one jurisdiction with lax, with lax regulations, everybody's got the same thing. So in this case, we need the same process. It's been 20 years in the financial sector. It is not sorted. So this is a very ambitious statement, but you know you can see the next two decades of trying to get it actually on like actually working okay that's really interesting guys thanks um next on the list we have the green party their uh, ideas kind of in intelligence defense they want to create a parliamentary committee to investigate 5g technology and what it means for canada as well as a second parliamentary committee to look at the effects of artificial intelligence often because it'll it'll disrupt work i mean there's there's some nexes there to intelligence particularly on on 5g technology i'm not convinced a parliamentary committee's probably the way to go about that. You, you know, they can hold hearings and do interesting research. And certainly we have seen, I think, some productive stuff come out of the uh, working groups on data and privacy protection. That's actually been some some really interesting reports out of that. I, I would... I, look, I'm always a fan of trying to understand implications of technology for, for Canada, but I, I'm just not sure the parliamentary committee wrote is the one I would take. I think for the Green Party here, you know, we need to give them a bit of credit because they're one of the only parties that have come out and said, we're going to study something before we try to make a policy recommendation around <laughs> it, um, which I'm always a fan of, right? Like you study something, figure out what the problem is, and then you actually implement the solution. Fair. Um, you know, I think generally speaking, the Green Party is not the strongest on the security and defense. Um, piece, and you can kind of see it in some of these recommendations, which is, it's fine. Well, this is kind of interesting because one of the points here that really did stick out to me is on the surveillance side, when they do actually start getting to the intelligence um, picture. So the first point that they say is the CSIS and CSE will need a warrant before accessing Canadian, the information of Canadians. And that that is the law now. Like, it, I mean... I don't really know what to say. I mean, I think there were, must be referring here to the active cyber operations, which some civil society groups have basically said that they feel that, you know, one of the new powers that CSE was given through Bill C-59 was the ability to engage in these active cyber operations, which do not actually need prior approval by a, a federal court judge or, in the, or the intelligence commissioner in order to go ahead. And that is, of course, to protect Section 8 rights. And if you don't know what I mean, just go back and look at all that. We're not getting into it now. Well, I'll just, I'll just, well, it's not about Section 8, right? Active cyber is not about search and seizure, really. Active cyber is about everything other than surveillance. So, um, But they're saying the that part, the information can be incidentally collected. Um, that's actually a separate thing, right? right. So um, realistically, in terms of foreign intelligence collection, right now CSC doesn't need a warrant in order to collect foreign data that may require that it may lead to the incidental collection of Canadian information yes. right now that is a ministerial approval with IC like with IC oversight so, so intelligence the, commissioner oversight right, yeah exactly um, and in in the CSIS world um, I think they could be referring here to potentially to publicly available data set information right. that has you know been the subject of a lot of conversation here but I do think you're right that they're alluding to a debate that was had Canadian Civil Liberties Association and others raised the idea that before Canada were to engage in active or defensive cyber operations, um, which really is an like 
you can kind of think of it at the level of imposing sanctions, use of force. That's the kind of thing that active and defensive cyber measures tend to um, elicit when you think about them, that that kind of thing should be only authorized with judicial oversight. And most people... Um, well, not most people, but many of us push back and say, no, that's that's an executive function yeah. that should not be constrained by judicial oversight. Crown prerogative. Um, yes, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's always been my stance. Um, I, I understand reasonable people can disagree about that. But the way it was phrased in the book, I thought, was very unfortunate because it basically implies that CSIS and CSE are just running around collecting everyone's information when, in fact, that's not at all the case. And, and so that's just a very poor choice of words, I think, in the platform. And then the second thing in here, which was interesting, was the ending of surveillance of Canadians who protest. And I think they're referring here specifically to environmental movements. And I do see a problem with this. I mean, there was the case this summer where um, that that's currently before the courts where you have activists who have been, uh, they, they claim that they're being surveilled by national security services. I and they actually specifically say in the platform that they won't provide their information to the National Energy Board. So they couldn't be more specific if they wanted to. I, I think, again, the bluntness of the language here is is problematic. And, you know, I'm thinking today it is, uh, you know, Friday, October 18th, and it there's a big protest right now in Alberta about climate change. And there's a counter protest that's being led by a group called United We Roll. And United We Roll, I mean, I get it. They're, they're, you know, people from the industry in Alberta, they're hurting. But we also know, for example, there's far right people who have attached themselves to this movement. And the ability not to monitor uh, protests means that these people can go to these protests and potentially then try to use them or leverage them to engage in violence. So I think the thing is here, it's, you know, the National Security Services of Canada don't monitor legitimate democratic dissent, but they do monitor people who po may pose a threat to Canada or are believed to be posing a threat to the security of Canada more correctly. And if they go to these protests, then you want the security services to follow them, which then means that those protests are actually being surveilled in some way. And I, I think that's, you know, given the tensions about issues about the environment, indigenous rights and things like that, and, and some of the you know, the rising polarization of political issues in Canada, I, I don't think that just stopping monitoring of, of protest movements is something that should be so blunt. Yeah, the way they phrased it here is a really unfortunate reading of those protest papers that came out this summer. And I think it's a bit unfortunate because where they say in other parts of their platform they're going to study an issue, this same issue could actually have benefited from that kind of nuance too. Like we're going to spend some time and study and perhaps look at uh, CSIS, RCMP's surveillance of these individuals or of protest movements and then make recommendations because it doesn't seem to me that they really understand the national security environment here all that well. I'll just add, and there is a mechanism by which the ministers uh, of public safety, for example, could put NSIRA to have them review this very specific issue. Um, and I'll just add to Stephanie's point, um, you know, I remember the GAG20 in Toronto and I remember how anarchist groups leveraged what was a peaceful protest to create chaos. And the idea that um, that, that should just be hands-off for security services um, is would be detrimental, in my opinion, to national security. And so I think it just we just need to take a realistic look at this, is that it's not that typical protesters are a threat. It's those that leverage protests to advance their violent agendas that's the threat. 
So, so just moving along, I should also note the Green Party is going to do a third uh, parliamentary study into the Internet of Things. Sure, why not? Um, the, the NDP, there's nothing really in the platform on these kinds of issues. The conservatives, however, they talk about creating a cyberbullying accountability act. You know, fair enough. Consent needs to be obtained before accessing data on, on various platforms. I mean, that's so upping kind of privacy. I, they also talk about creating more ethical guidelines for the Internet of Things. One of the things that was interesting to me is they do talk about a creating a Canada cyber safe brand. So basically uh, creating some kind of standards that, um, you know, so if you purchase a digital project or product like a, a fridge, I don't know, because everyone wants their fridge connected to the Internet these days, cyber fridge, you would know that this has been met a certain cybersecurity standard. And this is one of the things that um, experts are saying is a best practice that should be put in place, right? Like looking to other um, elements of consumer standardization of products. I mean, just as we test vehicles for safety and whatnot, that we should be um, testing IoT type devices and people should understand the risks. Because as Bruce Schneer, who's one of the like experts on this field, says, you, you don't have a, a T-shirt anymore. You have a computer that you wear. You don't have a fridge anymore. You have a computer that keeps your food cold. Like, we're just getting into the state where everything is a computer with something else. And unless un people understand the risks associated and have a way of assessing those risks that's not overly complicated, um, it's going to exacerbate the problem of IoT. I mean, I, I guess the only point I would raise about that is the problem with those standards is how agile they will have to be. Yes. And that's And that's the complex issue here. Well, if you have like an electrical product, so like you have a CSA, mm -hmm. you know, it's been CSA approved. It's not going to, hopefully it's not going to electrocute you when you plug it in. Um, with cyber, because things change so quickly, that same process is just not going to fly. Yeah. And the other problem too is that it requires, generally re updates require human intervention. So updates are only as good as the humans that decide to update their, their devices. So, I mean, the standards can mean one thing, but if the human person operating that system doesn't do what they need to do to keep it safe, it doesn't matter what sticker you put on it, eventually it'll render itself unsafe. Right. So good idea, but will require some um, nimble execution. Correct. Okay. Oh, and I should note here they want to create a cabinet committee on cybersecurity and data privacy, which, sure. That makes sense to me. Yeah, it's it's complex, it's big and crazy. Okay. Although I will point out that just because you could create a cabinet committee doesn't mean you're actually planning on doing anything about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably fair. <laughs> but at least, I would hope, though, that the, the one issue that would be good there, that, that, you know, I worry that we don't really have any centralized mechanisms to talk about these issues. So the more the cabinet is familiar with issues about cybersecurity, privacy and things like that, I, I think it's the better. So, but, you know, it that's also true. I'm just trying to make sure that I critique every party equally. <laughs> <laughs> we are we are a nonpartisan podcast. I just want to stress that. So then we have other kind of terrorism and security issues in the various platforms. Um, the Liberal Party, I mean, I, I'm interested in your guys' take on this, uh, wants to create a director of terrorism prosecutions. Does this idea make sense? Okay, so... I have You're gearing up here. I'm I just am. letting the no, audience Leah know. Has views on <laughs> Leah has some views. Okay. All right. Buckle up. So for years, mm -hmm. people have been saying that you need specialized prosecutors in order to do prose terrorism prosecutions, right? right? They need to have a certain cell set. They need to develop relationships with um, the 
law enforcement agencies and the intelligence agencies responsible for building these cases um, because they are very complex. And um, that's something that Air India has said that Craig Forces and Kent Roach have written about. I recently wrote about it after studying um, comparatively how prosecutions are done in the UK. Just seems like a no-brainer. So I was optimistic that something like that would eventually arise. I mean, we're we're a small PPSC here. Public Prosecution Services isn't a super big organization. But the idea that we'd have a few people who are, are core to terrorism prosecutions formally, right? Not just because they happen to get assigned a lot of these cases, but formally these are the people who would reach out into the insets um, who are building cases to assist so that they can think about some of the intelligence to evidence issues, for example, um, before charges are even laid and start to think about how they would actually build a case that's prosecutable would be really something that's valuable. Now, PPSC has a coordinator of terrorism prosecutions here in Ottawa. Um, I'm not sure if this director of terrorism prosecutions is going to be that role elevated. Um, but just having one person responsible doesn't change the fact, like doesn't get you all the rest of it, right? You still need a team. And it doesn't spell out here that they're going to actually put any resources behind kind of creating a a cell or a subset of prosecutors with this task. Um, so I think the idea that you're just going to give someone a new title and all of a sudden we're going to be able to prosecute terrorists better, I think, is um, a pipe dream. So you think this is more of an intelligence to evidence issue than the need for a terrorism prosecution service specifically? I, th I th All the things that come from... So we never talk about intel to evidence on this podcast. Oh, no. Everybody drink. Um, <laughs> it, it's it's all of it, right? Like, terrorism prosecutions are hard for multiple reasons. They are complicated. They involve multiple moving pieces. And all of that also contributes to intelligence to evidence. Um, on top of the purely, we have CSIS involved. How do we move CSIS intelligence into the criminal evidence world? All of that uh, makes terrorism prosecutions harder because, you know, unless... Unless it is someone who is wielding a knife and gets captured by a police officer in a train station and you can prosecute them quite easily. The big prosecutions are hard and they are complex and they d require people with specialized expertise and um, they require prosecutors being involved early and building relationships not just with police but also with the intelligence services who have a stake in those prosecutions. I think the other issue that we have in terms of the terrorism prosecutions is that we don't actually know that intelligence to evidence is the only issue. Mm -hmm. So we always talk about it as being an issue. It is definitely an issue. But when you look at the 60 and 60 plus individuals who have come back to Canada who haven't been charged, we don't know that I2E has been an issue in all of those cases. Just today, you know, there was a reporting coming out of Vancouver that the RCMP investigative standards were not met on major money laundering investigations, leadership problems. Uh, resulting in breakdowns of supervision. And in some instances, proper documentation wasn't kept. And this is like a major money laundering investigation. Is it possible that those are, st are issues on our terrorism investigations as well? I mean, terrorism has, I mean, people talk about all of the disclosure issues are problematic, getting disclosure out in time. We now have 
Jordan requirements in terms of bringing prosecutions quickly. And I'll also so that was just quickly that was just the decision that basically there's a time limit on how long it takes to actually bring someone to court. Exactly. And so I think, and anecdotally, I've heard that provincial prosecutors who basically would be responsible in each of these jurisdictions for building the cases and bringing, at this point, um, bringing charges with in conjunction with PPSD, right, um, are gun shy. They don't want to see these cases fail. Um, and so they don't bring the charges. And that's anecdotal evidence, but I think um, the fact that we have just seen so many people come back and not face prosecute and not face charges leads me to believe that there are multiple issues at play. Which actually just speaks a bit more to your point about having specialized prosecutors as well, right? Because we see this all the time in terrorist financing investigations in a lot of different jurisdictions where they have those specialized prosecutors who are able to sort of get involved in the investigation early and understand the mechanisms. It can be very technical. Um, but all of these issues, regardless of what the specific ones are, speak to that how beneficial it would be to have people who are actually experts in this. So the other thing, um, again, liberals, they talk about similar to uh, what we've already discussed is just in a different section here. They they want, also want to create the review organization for CBSA. That's just the legislation that died. They want to hire more RCMP officers maybe to help out with some of the issues that you raised, Jess. They want to increase the funding for the Canadian Centre for Community Engagement Prevention of Violence, the CCCEPV. Uh, I think it typically goes by the Canada Centre these days. So I increase it to $6 million over three years, so I guess $2 million a year as well as directing resources to to counter far-right extremism in Canada as well. Uh, but also they say international networks, and I think that's important. Then finally, I think here there's the really kind of issue that we've hinted at on this podcast we've never really talked about, and I don't think we're going to have a chance to do that here, which is um, – how basically, you know, do we need a, some kind of legal framework for the collection of defense intelligence? That's going to be a, a crazy issue coming up. It was something that the National Security Committee of Parliamentarians has basically suggested in their first annual report as a part of one of their studies, uh, simply because, you know, we spend a lot of time. We, we Even today, we talked about the fact that, you know, the process of collecting information about Canadians is heavily regulated for organizations like CSIS and CSC. But there's not much known about how this is handled in a national defense context. And I think the argument from you'll hear from, you know, one of our colleagues, Phil Lacassay, is that this is a crown prerogative. It's an executive power. But if you're doing domestic operations and you're gathering information about Canadians, how does that actually make you different from our national security agencies? Well, there's a couple different things that doesn't really get mentioned. And a lot. And so some things I'll just put on the table for food for thought is that very often if the Canadian forces involved in intelligence collection, they are working under the mandates. They are assisting CSC or CSIS or the RCMP. So they are regulated by whatever the laws are that constrain those agencies. They don't get right. to run around on their own. It's really only when they're operating under their capacity as purely Canadian armed forces um, engaged in intelligence collection to say um, in advance of foreign deployments that that's where we start to get into the crown prerogative area. Even even law enforcement um, collection by the Canadian Armed Forces is regulated under the National Defense Act, and you know it it limit it applies in a limited way to members of the Canadian Forces who have signed away some of their charter rights. So it's not quite the same. It wouldn't be as simple as just mapping everything on. But I think we need to take a step back and 
and just kind of take a breath and realize that if the Canadian forces are in Canada collecting information on Canadians, it's usually under the mandate of another um, intelligence agency and their authorities apply. Okay, well, that's going to be an issue. We, I definitely want to have the uh, uh, basically the crown prerogative defense intelligence fight that we've locked, long talked about. That's that's going to happen one day, but it's not going to be today. But uh, I think it's a really interesting question. Yeah, we'll put a pin in it for later. Right, exactly. Watch this space. The Green Party, um, they don't have, I mean, we've kind of already talked a little bit about their their views on intelligence and, and, and surveillance, which is obviously something that's pretty core to their platform. They want to support the treaty to abolish nuclear weapons, which, you know, that's probably consistent with Green positions. That's fine. I, I always think that's going to be a bit of a challenge if you are in, a, in NATO, which is effectively a nuclear alliance, how that's going to work. But sure, they want to end businesses. It would make for awkward dinner conversation. It would. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I, but, you know, like, how, how's it going? By the way, you ban nuclear weapons in your nuclear alliance. Does that make this awkward for you? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Please pass the gravy. So you have, you know, they, they talk here about like ending relations really kind of with Saudi Arabia. They support altering, um, but when it comes to terrorism, they, they talk about altering the Anti-Terrorism Act and the Public Safety Act with regards to detention. And they want to make sure that um, charges are placed after a period of time. And again, this is one of these areas where it's not immediately clear what they mean. I don't know if any of you guys have thoughts on this. So there is a, uh, some... when. Craig has talked about this at length in your past processes podcasts about the ability to detain um, individuals briefly to conduct investigative detention. A lot of that was changed or with C fifty nine or altogether removed in one particular instance. So the idea um, that people will be held for long periods of time without charge or judicial review is. Um, not really accurate in today's legal scheme. But um, yes, charges should be brought before people are detained. That is a thing that should happen. But I, I, I think we're all a fan of the justice system on this podcast. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Big fans. Big fans. Big fans. Okay. And also, they. this is interesting. They want to start investigation about foreign agencies using torture. Well, isn't that a can of worms? <laughs> <laughs> we, you know, the very first podcast that we did, uh, Craig and I, was on this issue about um, torture because the uh, guidelines uh, that Ralph Goodale uh, and Minister of Public Safety uh, had put out at that time. Uh, mm -hmm. The fact is Canada's intelligence partners use torture. Like, certainly mistreat people. They certainly mistreat. I think that's maybe more accurate. Like, or the you know the prison conditions in a lot of these countries are what we would consider torture in Canada, and this is an issue. And well, so, I would what say not torture, right? Like these things have different legal meanings. Yes, right. So torture, inhumane treatment, degrading treatment. These are all actually different legal standards that um, like human rights bodies across the world have established, and there would definitely be instances where for sure some of our partners would engage in their prisons. You know, it used to be that if you lived in a cell that was less than 2.85 meters squares, that was considered inhumane treatment, right? So certainly that's going to be the case in certain instances. But I mean, that doesn't necessarily rise to the level of what we think about when we talk about torture. So I just think we should be clear on just that. Just clear on this, yeah. yeah. I, but like, I think, like I, like, I guess what I'm thinking here is a country like Turkey, right? They're, they have problematic prisons, they are instrumental in the fight against ISIS. They are an extraordinarily problematic ally right now. 
Yeah, but a little we, bit. Yeah, a little bit. Um, but they do send information to us, right? Uh, when Canadians cross the border, if it's believed that they're trying to join the Islamic State, there have been cases where they have provided us with information. I think if we disrupted that relationship, it would be extremely detrimental to our interests. Um, that is a very difficult thing to say. But I also have a lot of confidence in the measures that have been put in place and actually the the thing that we were t- – the ministerial guidelines that we talked about in the first very first episode of this podcast were put into Bill C-59. I think we actually have a fairly good balanced approach as a result of that. But, I mean, it's never good to say, yeah, I'm pro-torture. And no matter how you say this, you come out sounding that way. It's not that, but I'm kind of like how do you – deal with a country like Turkey realistically? Do you sever relations? Um, what do you do? I think this is one of, and again, I love it when the Green Party comes out and says they're going to study something. Because I think that there's a really great conversation to be had around torture, mistreatment, and like how our national security agencies should be engaging with those partners. I agree that the framework has been strengthened over the last few years, but I think having a public conversation about that would be really beneficial. So... You know, I actually think this is a very interesting proposition. Word. (laughs) Uh, The NDP, again, not too much here. They talk about addressing terrorism, threats, and espionage through multilateral relationships, which, you know, sure. That's how we do it. Right. That is how we do it. That is how we do. That is... I can't really complain about that. The conservatives is where I think we're going to have a more interesting conversation here. Also have some thoughts. (laughs) Um, They believe that um, they, they don't like... Bill C-59 uh, or parts of it. They want to change it, but they don't really say too much on on what they want to change. They talk about failure to prevent terrorists who travel overseas. And, and that's fair. I would note that a lot of those people traveled before 2015, but that's probably me just being cruel. And did any of them come back during a conservative government? Uh, I couldn't possibly disclose that information. Um so there's a number of issues here on the terrorism side um, that they want to do. One is they want to support Canadian children returning to Canada who are born to terrorists. I think the issue there is taking children from parents is a very fraught process uh, at the best of times. So that might be something difficult. But the one um, that I know sparked a conversation among us, at least um, in, in, in when we were chatting about this when it came out, is that they want to basically put in an Australia-style law whereby basically a minister could designate a zone as, a, you know, kind of a, a terrorist like area or an area where that's off-limits to citizens. And if you travel there, there would be, I believe, a reverse onus charge to demonstrate that you were there for legitimate and not illegitimate purposes. And we've seen some talk about this online. It was whether, you know, I, I've, at least I've seen it on Twitter. Some people are, are, are concerned about the reverse onus charge. If I just take the idea of the fact that I think the Canadian government should be able to look at a, an area like Syria and say, you know what, no one can go there that isn't either in the Canadian Armed Forces or working for the government. I actually think it's, you know, designating an designating an area and saying, you know what, this, this is off limits because um, we feel that people go, are going there are going to be doing it for the wrong reasons uh, or to participate in a terrorist enterprise is not necessarily a bad thing. I think that's kind of the, you know, we talk about 
I mean, I, I'm not a lawyer, so I always mess this up, like how we use Section 1 of the Charter. But to me, I think there are limits in a free and democratic society, and one of those limits should be not going to Syria to kill people. Now, I appreciate also that it's already illegal to go to Syria to kill, to people. kill people. So that that's there. Yeah, it would just make it illegal to go there and drive a bus. Right. Which is something actually we have a lot more trouble trying to demonstrate. In, in evidence. So I can see the value of this proposition. Um, I actually think it's not a, a, a bad idea to have something like this as one of many tools in a toolkit. If we should ever see an, like a situation like Syria rise again, and God knows the way it's going, we might see Syria rise again as a major draw for terrorist groups. So I'm really curious about the legal implications of this. Um, okay, so there are Walk many. me through this. Tell me why I'm wrong. <laughs> no, no, no. It's not that you're wrong, Stephanie. You're never wrong. It's, uh, and it's not that the conservatives are necessarily wrong, but the devil is really in the detail. Yeah. And I think because of the details required, it may not prove to be all that effective. So this is something that the conservatives proposed in, in the last election, actually. Um, but this is a little bit more circumspect, but still there's a lot of detail lacking. So in terms of a reverse onus, the way I could potentially see this working out is not unlike how we have defenses for hate um, speech, for example. So where you, um, the first part would be the government would have to establish that you went somewhere, right? You, uh, you, Leah, went to northeastern Syria two weeks ago. Yes, check. Okay. So presumptively, unless I can prove that I went there for one of the authorized reasons, so those would tend to be enumerated reasons, um, then the presumption is that I went there to be a terrorist. So te you, would, you would tend to see, and you see this in the Australian Code, did you go there for humanitarian purposes? Were you there with the Canadian Armed Forces? Were you there as a journalist, for example? These are all things. So then the individual accused would have to prove why it was that they were there. But um, the problem is, is that I can see, it, especially given some of the interviews I've done lately, is that people are saying, I went for humanitarian purposes. And so they'll produce some evidence and it's balanced, it would have to be balance of probabilities. So 50% plus one, basically, in terms of the proof to say, no, I went there for humanitarian purposes. I went to help. Then the government would have to disprove that. How do they disprove that? They have to prove what they did. Evidence, yeah. So it's right? the exact same problem. You get back to the exact same problem you had in the first place. So unless someone really can't come up with any kind of evidence to support that they went there to help people, which I think would be hard to disprove unless you had actual evidence of what they did, you get back to the same point in the first place. The only thing that I will say that encourages me about a charge like this is that if it causes people to bring people back to Canada and attempt to prosecute them rather than letting them languish somewhere abroad, I'm for it. But I just don't think it's necessarily going to be more effective as a tool to actually successfully prosecute terrorists than what we already have on the books. And that really relates to the earlier point that I was making is that this is sort of presented as a solution to the intel to evidence problem. Again, I'm not convinced that's the only problem that we have in terms of prosecuting terrorists in Canada. I think there's a lot of other underlying issues, probably 10 or 15 different ones that we could enumerate um, and that should be enumerated actually in terms of a, a review of those cases. So that's really my, my, my take on this is that it's proposing to be the one and only solution that we need where I think we actually need a lot more. 
all the civil libertarians out there will be screaming at me to mention the charter, right? So the charter does give, mention the charter. give the Canadian right. citizens the right to enter and leave Canada, right? So what if the person is a dual Canadian Syrian citizen? Should they not be allowed to travel back to their other country? To get, um, to get their relatives out? To do, do any kinds, type yeah. of thing, right? Yeah. So you can see how you could potentially really narrowly craft the region, for example, to say uh, the presumption stands. But Australia's had a problem with this because in order to find that the the limit on the rights of individuals to travel abroad is narrowly circumscribed enough that it's not unconstitutional, you're constantly having to adjust borders. Okay. So that becomes a problem as well as who's making these decisions. And if they're not narrowly tailored, um, like it's not all of Syria that is a war zone right now. Right. 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 So it's not all of Syria that was, um, controlled by ISIS. So it, it does become a question of, of having to draw really tight lines and then having to prove that that person was inside those really tight lines, which then again goes back to the original problem in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I I, I take all that. So, like, I appreciate that this would really be a difficult piece of legislation to craft to do so that it was meeting charter standards um, mm. and also just practically because, as you say, you would consistently have to basically yeah. demonstrate that uh, or, or adjust the borders and things like that. I guess at the end of the day, I still don't think it's necessarily a terrible idea. No, and I think – but the problem that I have with this is it's like, look, we're doing something. We're creating another law, right? And that's not really doing anything that's going to solve the problems we have, I think, right now. We need will – like we need the will to bring these cases. We need specialized teams to bring these cases. We need to put the resources behind it. Um, and, you know, I think saying, look, we're doing something to make it better because we've put a new law in the books doesn't necessarily make it better if you don't change all the rest of it. Right. So I'd rather see emphasis put on, um, you know, building specialized prosecution systems, actually doing something about intelligence to evidence, you know, these kinds of things that will isn't just a bureaucratic nice to say we've done something solution it's actually going to move the ball forward i mean i'm kind of disappointed that most of these platforms have no like i was expecting like 12 pages on intelligence evidence i know because that's what the voters want it is what the it's, it's what, what the, the voters of want. this podcast want <laughs> exactly but the, and this votes. is not a conservative <laughs> alone problem right like no. this is definitely not exactly. isolated to the conservative platform no um none of the parties have really taken a, a stance of trying to 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 really fix this problem. It's not a problem that's sexy to voters, especially not in this election. Um, again, except for two intrepid voters. But um, <laughs> so I'm not all that surprised. I just I just want people to be careful to, not to think that you know just by adding another lot of the books, we're going to solve all our problems. Well, to those two intrepid voters out there, we really appreciate that. But let's so let's let's this is getting long. So I just want to do the final thing here, which is um, under the foreign aid part, we have a little bit on sanctions. And Jess, I think this is where you can like do our big finish. Yeah. Right. The big stick the landing. <laughs> <laughs> so the liberals want to build on the Magnitsky sanction regime that they've put in place. Um, so I'm quoting now from their, their platform by developing a framework to transfer seized assets from those who commit grave human rights abuses to their victims with appropriate judicial oversight. So, you know, the Magnitsky sanctions are um, 
I would say broadly very good. There's maybe some legal issues with some of them. Um, but overall, my one comment on sanctions in Canada is we do not have effective enforcement. So by implementing more or promising more sanctions and more sanctions sort of tools, that's all well and good, but we're actually really, really bad at enforcing the ones that we have. So I would prefer to see somebody say, we're actually going to put some money, some resources behind this enforcement. We're going to take a look at our existing sanctions regime, maybe rationalize that a little bit, and then move forward with some more um, some more, some more sanctions in that in that place. I should note the conservatives also have um, some s similar ideas that they want to do more on applying um, the Magnitsky sanctions abroad. I mean, I guess my only concern with with more sanctions is that it makes it really, really hard. In some ways, they're booby traps as well, right? So, you know, if you're having bad relations with a country and you start punishing their human rights abusers, if you want to restart relations with those countries those sanctions are going to be there and they're going to be very hard to take off. Um, so, I mean, I do support sanctions for human rights. I mean, Canada's a small economy. We don't have massive abilities to actually really kind of damage anyone's economy in particular. I think that's the other thing we need to bear in mind here. But um, my, my only concern with magnitsky sanctions is that you put them in place. Let's say there's something you need to talk about or you do want to look at improving relations down the road those sanctions are still there, chances are that country's still abusing human rights. Um, it's going to be hard to, to go forward. So that's, that's about as political as we get on this podcast, I think. I think the most political thing I'm going to say here is vote. Vote. Everyone should vote. Everyone vote. Everyone vote. The spies want you to vote. Vote. You know, the spies spend a lot of time behind computers looking at, like, terrible things in order to keep Canada safe so you can freaking vote. Yeah. So just go vote. Go Please vote. vote. Okay. One more uh, time. Vote. vote. All right. On that positive message, <laughs> hopefully you're not listening to this on Tuesday going, no! Yeah, I should have voted. <laughs> voted. We uh, are judging you and condemning you. <laughs> right now. I might edit that line out. Okay. <laughs> um, but the um, uh, Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to you guys for coming on the podcast. And we'll be back soon, possibly with a Her Majesty in Right of Pod with Phil Lagasse, which is always fun. and uh, Potentially talking about all the different uh, coalition options. Um. I don't know. Maybe we'll take some time out to talk about that. But if not, you can just go on Twitter and every 30 seconds you can see uh, a Phil Lagasse tweet about coalition mm -hmm. options. So uh, he's, he's, he's been doing us well. Yeah. Thanks for having us on. Cheers. Bye.